0: Comment and share. All right, good day, everyone. This is CJ, and very excited today to be delivering another edition of the Serious Report uh, with London Paul. Uh, London Paul needs no introduction; however, you can find his work at the Report, uh, dot com. And uh, we're we're very excited to have Paul uh, back today. And, uh tra- Paul was traveling last week and you know everyone was like where's paul where's paul we need we need to hear his message this week where is he so so i'm I'm excited paul that you're you're back with us this week so how are you sir
1: yeah good morning cj and good morning uh afternoon evening wherever we, you know anyone's listening yeah i'm I'm very well we've got glorious weather here in the uk so it's a bit it's a bit surprising it seems to have been going on for a while <laughs> which is a little bit unusual but uh long may it continue
0: well that's nice yeah it's been it's been fairly decent here uh in the in the midwest uh in the, in the u.s so yeah but i i, I tell you what it was, it's been a, a very interesting uh, couple of weeks paul and and i'm excited to i know i'm excited our listeners are excited to hear you know your insights and and your thoughts so uh, where would you like to begin
1: well i think it's worth pointing out you know that i I think internally within the US, and I put a sort of small article out on the website alluding to this at the weekend, there's there's a huge amount of progress that's been going on internally. It seems frustrating to most people that they don't see the progress they want to see, but this was never going to be a, just a quick a quick win situation. It was always going to take a long time, and I've always maintained from my perspective, you have to let the cabal fall on their own sword, and they gradually week by week, month by month doing that. And you made reference to Brandon earlier and his comments for me was just a a comment out of fear and let them make these comments because all they're doing is, is highlighting their position in the equation, their role in things and eventually all will come to pass. And while they keep making these comments and keep constantly sort of picking at the scab or something or, digging a hole for themselves, let them do it. It's, it's fine because it will just highlight more and more to people the reality of what's going on, because in the end, they, how, how long can you keep defending the indefensible and let them do it? It's, it's not a problem. It's the same with the whole Mueller investigation. Just let it carry on. Uh, and as I said, it will eventually die a death. It, it will fizzle out and let them do it. Let them waste a lot of time. Let them waste all this energy on on a pointless, meaningless investigation. Because it's dragging a lot of resources and effort in a direction that's, that's, that's futile and fruitless. So let them do it. From my perspective, it's fine. I think the problem I have, continue, or continue to have a problem, is US foreign policy decisions. It's, it's as we said before, is dysfunctional. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And the JCPOA is a classic example of that. And while you were um, obviously doing the show with V there was um, Pompeo gave some statements about Iran which I hurriedly you know listened to and got some idea of and and I think it really shows once again that you know, how out of step the u.s is with with Europe Russia and China yes there's all this idea that that you know the JcpoA was some cabal agreement and there's all these strange goings on well there's there isn't any evidence to support that and let's face it why is russia why is china why is the whole of the european union and everyone but the u.s on board i know israel of course on board with the and doing everything to preserve it and then we have pompeo coming out where he said that the u.s is going to apply the strongest sanctions in history on iran Well we have to put that in the context that they've had sanctions in place since 1979 so how much more severe can it get and and he made reference to iran will be battling to keep its economy alive after the sanctions come into full force and vows to work closely with the pentagon and regional allies to deter iranian aggression well you know that's inflammatory comments and I mean in no way shape or form does he really seriously imagine the iranians are going to suddenly sit down with with the u.s uh you know trump administration go okay let's renegotiate things making those comments and do they think this aggressive stance is going to reign iran in well absolutely not and and he said that iran's got to comply with this list of 12 u.s demands and and, and he said that, you know, basically they're going to struggle to keep their economy alive, as we said, if Tehran doesn't change its course from this kind of unacceptable and unproductive path it's chosen. Well, according to who? According to the U.S. and Israel, not, not the rest of the world. Now, amongst the 12 U.S. demands for Iran, it included the withdrawal of all of its forces from Syria. Well, hang on. <laughs> what Pompeo isn't acknowledging is the Iranians are there with the blessing of the Assad uh, government as are the Russians. Uh, Is the US there with any blessing? No. And then said basically one of the the 12 criteria is, well, withdraw all your forces or we're going to impose even more sanctions and cripple you in the process. And we've always said Iran was always about regime change and it was always about crippling them economically. It had nothing to do with them sticking to any nuclear agreement because there is no evidence they weren't doing the u.s knows that but that was just an excuse to punitively try to cripple the iranian economy even more so than has been in place since 1979 they've also come out uh, pompeo and said the u.s will track down iranian operatives and their hezbollah proxies operating around the world and we'll crush them so in a way he's also indirectly by these comments threatening uh, lebanon as well because hezbollah has a huge political influence in lebanon so what are they going to do they're going to march into lebanon and resolve problems there are they going to march into to syria in in, in a more aggressive stance than they already are and and ferment you know war what what were they doing and and then he says iran will never have carte blanche to dominate the middle east well last i saw where is iran dominating the middle east they're not you know they were asked to they're they're fulfilling a function in in syria with the assad government's blessing they did the same in iraq and the iraqi people seem very very grateful for the fact that you know the to, to all intents and purposes the old Daesh has been crushed in totality in iraq they were asked to go, apart from that they're not dominating in any other region The nation that's tried to dominate there for decades, of course, is the U.S. itself. And he's also, Pompeo's put this list of basic requirements for Iran, saying that they need to release all U.S. citizens and support for the Houthi rebels in Yemen, stop enrichment of uranium and promise never to process plutonium. Well, the point is they're fully in compliance with the JCPOA. So... This is this is uh, and then also made the comment that, you know, they must allow unqualified access to all nuclear sites throughout the country. Well, the, the IAEA have said they fully complied with that, and that whenever they want to have access to site, they're allowed to do so. The one thing the Iranians said they wouldn't agree to, and the IAEA didn't have a problem with, is military sites that had nothing to do with nuclear facilities and. And you know, in, in essence, I don't think that's a problem. Iran has a right to protect its own military bases, but there was no evidence they were producing enriched uh, uranium or anything else for that matter. And but perhaps the most staggering comment was when Pompeo said that he's sure over time, Washington's allies will warm to the Trump administration's current unpopular stance on Iran. Well, they made it perfectly clear that they're not happy. And I'm not suggesting, we, we it remains to be seen what happens because in the background there has been intense pressure trying to be put on all the European nations to to act to sort of acquiesce to Washington and walk away from the JCPOA. And thus far they've largely stood firm, but it remains to be seen what happens in the future. There's no guarantees in that regard. And then he also, Pompeo, said he was speaking directly to the Iranian people, claiming that, the president, Rouhani, and the foreign minister, Zahra, are elected leaders and that aren't they most responsible for your economic struggles? And the United States believes you deserve better? Well, what is, seriously, it, it just is staggering and beggars belief. The U.S. sanctions is one of the main reasons why they've had such economic struggles for decades. It's nothing to do with Rouhani and Zarif. They've tried to do everything to try and modernize um, Iran, uh, Iran. And also, you know, they are starting to economically turn a corner since <clears throat> 2015, precisely because economic sanctions were lifted. Okay, the U.S. didn't abide by that. But <clears throat> some European nations had done, some European companies had done, and, of course, the Russians and the Chinese particularly, have done a huge amount to, to assist them economically and militarily, as we know. But it's that, those kind of comments, it's just staggering because at what point is Iran going to listen to all that and go, well, you know, actually, yeah, we might have to renegotiate a new deal with the U.S. in good faith. They, rene- they negotiated a deal in good faith. They stuck to it in good faith because everybody, including the IAEA, including the European Union, including the French, the Germans, including the British, including the Russians and the Chinese, all said they're perfectly in sync with this, um, with this agreement. They're not breaching it in any way, shape, or form. And that is the reason they want the agreement preserved. It's not because it's a cabal plot. I mean, people talk about this cabal plot because the, the UK and the French and the Germans are insisting that they stay in the agreement. Well, here's an interesting fact. The same people who agreed for the jcpoa to remain in place have all disagreed with the us moving their um, uh, embassy to jerusalem and have and have said they won't move their embassies that that's the uk the french the germans the russians and the chinese to name but five but associated with the jcpoa so here's the question is that another cabal move no nations are changing it's not you know, yes, there are cabal influences for sure in Europe, and we know that, but they're beginning to change and they're beginning to rotate away from cabal influence. So they are starting to make decisions that are certainly not cabal orientated. And, and I think, you know, it's been proven just how inflammatory the U.S. moving their their embassy to um, to Jerusalem was. Because, I mean, we even had Saudi Arabia denouncing it. Who was supposed to be you know a us ally so there's been widespread condemnation and of course it all fell on the back of the horrendous uh, israeli aggression towards um the palestinian uh, people who were protesting and demonstrating now as i've said and i i'm not saying hamas is hamas is innocent in anything of course they're not they have some responsibility to pay for the for the massive problems we see in in the middle east but the Israeli act, uh, act act of aggression was completely out of order, and we've seen very sadly the whole kind of U.S. response to that, which was, I think, was was hugely uh, regrettable because they appear to want to defend Israel at all costs, um, you know, and no matter you know what the situation is. And we had an instance where Nikki Haley walked just walked out of the UN when. Palestinian U- UN envoy started to make a speech. I mean, this is, this is wholly uh, unproductive and it's wholly unhelpful. If you really seriously, anybody wants to resolve the problems in the Middle East and between Palestine and Israel, then you're going to have to start to go, well, we may have to start to address this in a different manner. And that's where I have concerns and, and the Iranian uh, comments made by uh, Pompeo are wholly unhelpful, and in f- and in fact quite contradictory to his stance before he became Secretary of State. When he was with the CIA, he was almost quite well. You know, they they're, they're not breaching the uh, the JCPOA, and you know we need to have diplomatic discussions and to maintain it. And as soon as he becomes inside the Trump administration, in terms of the the governance, rather than uh, the CIA, which is a supporting mechanism he's now changed his tune and come out with this inflammatory remarks, which I do have to say, I think are, are extremely unhelpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A couple of, you know, the, the blunders that occurred. And then the, the week prior to that, we had, uh, you know, John Bolton out there stating they're going to follow uh, the, the, is it the Lebanese model for. <laughs> oh, the Libyan model. <laughs> the Lib- yes, the Libyan which model. Is... Yeah. the Libyan oh, we model. We all saw how
1: that worked out. Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. So, so these things that are occurring are, are very concerning, Paul. And, and what we're witnessing is now uh the likes of germany are asking russia to to you know to become involved to try to figure out how to work out some type of a of an agreement to get back to the negotiating tables but you know it just amazing so we were first to go ahead and place these sanctions we you know whatever discussions take place it's sanctions first and what is what else is Iran to believe other than than the, the thing that the u.s wants is is regime change in, in Iran
1: yeah absolutely because you know the whole point of putting crippling economics I mean there's a history of this it's not like it's some newfound uh, sort of uh, decision to to impose punitive sanctions on nations it's been a classic cabal textbook uh, uh, you know modus operandi to to Destabilise a nation and try to promote regime change. I mean, I mean, so it's not. uh, This is not unusual, and it's and it's happened in countless nations across the world for decades. So, of course, it is. The natural conclusion is that they're you know they're not going to go for regime change by declaring war on the Iranians because they don't because they simply can't do that. Uh, I mean, that's that's a statement to the obvious, but what's the best the next best ways to try and economically cripple them and they, they i mean pompeo's statement today eloquently proves that's exactly what they're trying to do and and in the process what's that going to do well it's not going to work because what he fails to understand is the russians and the chinese are not just going to sit there and say well okay you can economically cripple this nation you you might eventually strong arm the european union in in one direction and make them eventually cave in and and agree to all the sanctions and uh, because they they're terrified of of being sanctioned themselves i mean it remains to be seen that as we said they've been pretty stern and and steadfast so far but it doesn't mean they'll stay that way it just depends the rhetoric that goes on you know in the background but in the process all it's going to do is accelerate the de-dollarization because nations in the future are going to start saying well you know am i on the am i next on the economic hit list i mean are they going to try and sanction me because iran's been has been fully aware since the trump administration was elected in back in late 2016 november 2016 that this was a realistic proposition i mean if i was writing about it and talking about it way back it's not because they they were most certainly aware of it and Therefore, on that basis, they started to make uh, inroads to try and de-dollarize and put mechanisms in place to circumvent the swift uh, you know, financial uh, payment system for obvious reasons. And other nations are going to start going, well, the faster we de-dollarize, the less the U.S. Has, can in, impart this influence over. So they're actually accelerating their own demise by doing this because it just means more and more nations will de-dollarize. And, and in the process, you know, the death of the dollar kills the US, uh, economically stone debt, as we know. But And it's been the cabal's sole weapon, really, and largely, to a large extent, is is having the dollar and exporting the debt for decades. It's what's kept the whole, you know, US cabal empire going all this time. And when, when the dollar dies and the world rejects the dollar, the cabal empire collapses. That's ultimately how it collapses. And... And in, in essence, that's why. You know, as much as we talk about when's the reset happening, well, the reset's happening now. It's ongoing. It's the collapse and the death of the dollar is a, is a big part of that. And it's every day and every week we're seeing more and more examples of de-dollarization going on. But but the current U.S. policy is just is accelerating that now. There's an argument that says, and I've said this and. We said it again and reiterated at the weekend trump's role is to take a wrecking ball to the cabal that's always been the case and i've i've never wavered from that from the moment he was elected and even said before he was elected that was what his role was to do well he knows if that's the case that you know the only way to kill the u.s cabal and kill the cabal is to kill the dollar and he knows there are economic consequences for that so there's an argument that says well If you looked at it that you know the trump administration's doing what it's doing because it's going to ultimately damage the cabal in the process and yes it will do because it will be having a damaging effect on on the us dollar but the problem in the process is it's also having a damage effect on the us's integrity and and people believing and have and you know and and having trust in them because they are the world's saying well you've walked away from another agreement that you've signed and and they've believed the US just walks away from every agreement they sign so they can't be trusted and they lack integrity and you know long after the cabal's gone the US needs to have that integrity in the world for the rest of the world to to work with them and trust them again so it's a double edged sword yeah it's fine to take you know take it to the cabal and and rack the dollar and destroy them in the process but there are you know, the unintended consequences. And and the problem is the JCPOA is a great example of that because at the moment, and yes, it can change, you've got the European Union, who is all supposed to be the US's allies, who have turned against them. The Chinese and the Russians, well, we can talk a bit about China in a minute, specifically on the whole trade issue, but you know, they haven't got the backing of nations. They've backed them, backing themselves more and more into a corner with regards to, really just having the the israelis um as an ally and the saudis to some extent but it's arguably questionable now to what extent the saudis are because to publicly come out and rebuke the us um, embassy move as we just said earlier i think it's highly indicative of some change in inside saudi arabia but i think i mean yeah maybe the, maybe we could talk a bit about saudi arabia as well because i there's something that's been niggling me for a little while and it started to to come out in and there's discussions regarding what's actually really going on inside Saudi Arabia. So Yeah, yeah uh, please, I, I yeah, please, me. yeah,
0: please continue, Paul, because I think it's, I, I think it's important. Uh, you know, everything what you just said is just, is, you know, the isolation that's occurring globally, you know, with the United States, with the recent actions that occurred, but yeah, please, please share regarding uh, Saudi Arabia and
1: what, what's happening. Well, there's, there's, as we know, the, there's always this concern in Saudi Arabia that the House of Saud can, could collapse. and in, in, in the last few days there's been a number of people arrested in Saudi Arabia. There's, they've had this suspicion of them having links to foreign entities that they believe are sought to destabilize you know the House of Saud. well, yeah, that is not beyond the boundaries of possibility and, and they've said these suspects are accused of involvement in orchestrated, activities and and apparently they've been making contacts in support of the activities of foreign entities who are seeking to undermine the house of south now who specifically are they are oh, we don't know um and they're also saying that these have conspired to recruit officials inside the government and provide money to people abroad who are plotting to destabilize the house of south now let's put this in the context of Do you remember at the back end of 2017 when mbs arrested, uh, you know, quite. A, I think it was over a dozen Saudi princes. There was a number of current ministers of the Saudi government and dozens of former government ministers. And they are all arrested in this anti-corruption move. And there was other high-profile arrests. And mm-hmm. I don't think right. any of them actually faced. I think they were basically just assets stripped and, and reduced to to having nothing. Now, amongst all this and those developments and recent developments, the question is, Where's Mohammed bin Salman being because he's not been seen for weeks now you know there was this whole thing back in I think the, around the 20th of April 21st of April that there was this heavy gunfire and explosions that were allegedly reported from outside the royal palace in in the Saudi capital obviously Riyadh now Apparently, so it's said. He's not been seen in public since then. Now we've got to be careful. I'm not putting two and two together here and making fifty two. And I'm not suggesting anything specifically. All I'm doing is stating the facts. So now, what's interesting is obviously Pompeo paid a visit to uh, Riyadh about a week or so after this incident in Riyadh. Now, MBS wasn't seen on camera. And around the time of this meeting, now, there, there, you know, there were suggestions that MBS met with Pompeo. But the only images we saw of was, was with, obviously, King Salma and the foreign minister were published. It was non-published with MBS. Now, there's a lot of schools of thought as to what happened on the 21st of April. There's belief that there was a coup led at that time, both Saudi royals who were, who were opposed to King Salma, There was other reports that suggested the shooting occurred when the palace guards targeted a drone which came too close to Salman's residence. I mean, that, yeah, it's possible, but does it sound believable? I don't know. And then there was claims that MBS was evacuated uh, to a military base for his safety. Um, Now, so the question is still, where is he? And then there's claims that, you know, Mohammed bin Salman has banned royal family members from leaving the country because there's a fear that his cousin and the former crown prince, who was obviously deposed, which is Mohammed bin Nayef, uh, is trying to topple him. Now, what we do know is, and this is old, not this is old news, is that bin uh, bin Nayef is extremely unhappy with the Saudi-led war against Yemen and the siege of Qatar, both of which were MBS initiatives. And, of course, mbs has, has offended a lot of muslim nations because he's taken this very anti-palestinian stance and of course the other thing we know is that's uh, that's angered a lot of the nations is there's uh, this whole date on between riyadh and tel aviv and that's been in place for pretty much getting on for a year now when bin salman became the crown prince and then of course there was the much vaunted uh, visit he did his kind of whistle stop tour bin salman and in march he did this tour where he went to the us and apparently he met with a lot of pro-israeli lobbying group including the apac which obviously if anyone's not sure because that's the american israeli public affairs committee now the other thing of course is that's deeply unpopular is the fact not Bin Salman's of 2030 you know vision project which ironically of course is trying to wean Saudi economy off oil ie the petrodollar and making the country a sort of normal non-oil state but a lot of analysts and people internally have cast doubt and said it's not economically viable to do this so there is resistance to to also I guess with the hardline um, house of Saud amongst the reforms he's trying to implement but the question comes back is well, why is he not being seen for weeks where is he and what's going on now I don't know because nobody can be clear, but for me, it's I'm, you know, I'm starting to see the fact that the someone in the Saudi uh, government came out and criticized the US uh, for the embassy um, being moved to Jerusalem. Does that sound like something MBS would come out with? I've given this detente with Tel Aviv, I very much doubt it. So it suggests either he's so in maybe in some way he's no longer has any sphere of influence or we don't know we don't know but certainly he's not been seen for weeks or heard of and the question is what's going on and and if he isn't what is the reason for it but that could be quite telling if if there are some developments in that regard because it might reshape the way saudi arabia is thinking and one thing we do know is that um, bin salman the king is very pro in terms of of the chinese and the Russians. so that may that may lead to a whole sea change. Now, I don't know in that regard, because we are speculating to some degree about what's happened to MBS. The rest of what we've just discussed is factual. But it does raise the question: is it potentially that Saudi Arabia is now going to sort of change and and therefore if the Saudi is going to be less, you know, respondent to to the US and the Middle East and beyond? And I'm not saying that is the case, but that's a big if. But it, if that's the case, the U.S. is just going to isolate itself even more with regards to, to its allies. And and it's all coming about because of the U.S. foreign policy. And we're back to the point that the Russians and the Chinese know that Trump's role is to take a wrecking ball to the cabal. But as I said, and, it, and it's worth repeating that. The US, with regards to, uh, sorry, the Russian China, with regards to US foreign policy, are very much in the situation now where they are saying, "Well, we can't really differentiate between, you know, the Trump administration and what we know they're trying to do, and and US's foreign policy, which is very much not in keeping with with the Trump administration's stated desire in terms of how they were going to approach the Middle East, etc., and and therefore." They now see his foreign policy as being very much deep state cabal again. And, and that's why they have serious reticence. And, and again, there isn't any game going on. The Chinese and the Russians aren't playing a game to fool anybody because they don't do that. They're not interested in playing. If the U.S. wants to play ball and do things correctly, they'll roll over backwards to help and to work with them. Of, of that, there is no doubt. But if, if someone thinks there's some games going on because, you know, that is to fool the cabal or something, they're not going to be fooled because how are they going to be fooled? Because everyone's talking about it. It's public knowledge if that was the case. Then. So it's no, it's no surprise to them. They only have to go on social media and go, oh, they're, they're trying to fool us. Oh, oh, well, we know about that. So it's, you can't play a, a, a game uh, or some convoluted plan and it's being played out in public. It would have to be done covertly and not ever discussed, which, again, just they wouldn't do that. That's not how China and Russia operates. And I didn't spend all the years I did understanding how the Chinese and the Russians think, operate and do things to, to, to seriously believe that that was even possible. And, and I know I know enough people in those parts of the world who, who rightly said this is nonsense with <laughs> We just don't play games like that. But we want the West to change, and we want an end to, to the cabal you know, world because it's not beneficial for the U.S., the U.K., Russia, China, and the rest of Europe in the process, as we all know.
0: Absolutely, Paul. You had <clears throat> spoke earlier in regards to the trade, and news came out regarding uh, some type of a joint statement between uh, China and U.S., Uh, regarding some of the trade negotiations you know that they were going to back away from the the trade war that some type of resolution had had been reached can you can you share a little bit about that please
1: yeah well obviously um i think it was on the 17th and 18th the the us and the chinese engaged in in consultations to do with trade in washington and the u.s delegation included uh, steve Mnuchin, mnuchin I uh, had Will Ross, who's the Secretary of Commerce, and the U.S. Trade Representative. That's Robert Lighter, Light Lighter, anyway. And the Chinese delegation was the State Council Vice President Li Hu, who's actually is a special envoy of, of Xi Jinping. So they did send a very high profile a person to to you know be involved in these consultations. Now, the statement was that there was a consensus taken on effective changes to substantially reduce the U S trade deficit in goods with China Well, China subsequently said that was never stated. They didn't say that. Um, I mean sensible statements did include there's the growing consumption needs of the Chinese people and the need for a high quality economic development and China will significantly increase purchases of United States goods and services. Well, there is some truth in that but the reality is and we'll come to the reality of increasing the purchases of. US goods and services it's not carte blanche it's not like well we've made this agreement so we're just going to do it the US would a have to provide the goods they want at a competitive price that means they you know that they're not just going to say well actually we'll we'll take some. US imports that cost 30 percent more than than the nation we currently import from because no nation's going to do that and of course, yes, there's truth truth in the fact that if the US was able to export more goods to China, then it could help support growth and employment in the US. That's absolutely true. And But saying it and doing it are two entirely different things. And also, they said both sides agreed on this kind of meaningful increase in the US uh, state's agriculture and energy exports. Well, that's highly debatable. Uh, given that China has only recently started to increase massively exports from other nations to the detriment of the U S in terms of agriculture and energy exports. Well, are they really going to buy LNG from the U S when they pay 30% more than they can buy from the Russians? No. <laughs> Why would they? Of course they're not going to, um, now they're also ex you know, talked about expanding trade in manufactured goods and services and, well, that's fine, but the U.S. needs a manufacturing base. And we come back to the point, who's going to finance that manufacturing base? Well, it's going to have to be the Chinese because no one else has got the money to, to roll. I mean, it, you know, if the infrastructure costs a trillion, which means it's probably two or three trillion dollars, then how much more is going to be need to be created to generate and stimulate business and, and growth in the process? So that that's a big problem okay there's this issue where they say of intellectual property protection and and to strengthen cooperation and well yeah but the chinese are quite rightly of saying from their perspective and and i think it's correct No, we don't steal intellectual property anymore we're actually you know pretty good at uh, making our own intellectual property and and you know drawing up our own uh engineering and uh, manufacturing base in terms of technology and they they have done of that, there is no doubt. Uh, yeah, okay. There was this agreement to encourage two-way investment. Well, that's just words; it doesn't mean anything. And all this level playing field for co- for competition, whatever that means, and it's just words. And you know, oh, engage at high levels on issues and resolve economic and trade concerns in a proactive manner. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, I mean, I I kind of read through it. I didn't see anything there that was concrete. There was nothing solid. And then if we start to drill down in, in and look at the real economic situation, you know, the White House is going to fall completely short of any plan to slash the U.S. trade def- deficit with China. And that's in largely part because if we talk about the manufacturing base and, and the agriculture industry. American farms and factories are going to find it hard to produce enough exports to even meet that goal. So, You know, the U.S. plan was to reduce the trade deficit with China by at least 200 billion by the end of 2020. That was what they went in all guns blazing. And the Chinese said absolutely no way. And of course, that's not even remotely going to happen. And it wasn't even agreed by the Chinese in the process. But, you know, let's let's look at this logically, even if the two sides can agree on items to target. And and, you know, if China cooperates and lowers import barriers, the U.S. simply doesn't have the capacity to ramp up production enough to make 200 billion gold remotely achievable. So even if China said, OK, yeah, let's we're really serious. We'll do it. The the U.S. doesn't have the capability to do this. Um, The U.S. Treasury, when they were asked to comment on that matter, didn't say anything. They didn't come back with anything to say, well, actually, we have a plan and this is how we're going to do it. And the silence for me is deafening. And also, quite rightly, China has stated from the outset, you can't expect China to reduce a deficit by a certain amount within a certain period of time, because that's not even realistic. And again, of course, they haven't even agreed to that. And, you know, even big changes in exports are not going to really reduce the trade deficit by the amount the U.S. desires. Because let's be honest, the one thing the U.S. was pushing for, a big increase in the purchase of Boeing aircraft, which sells, well, I don't know, $275 million each. Well, the last year, the U.S. exported about $16 in aircraft. Well, here's the the problem for Boeing. Boeing themselves have got about nearly 6,000 jets on order. Now, that backlog equates to about seven years currently of output. So even if Boeing can juggle their orders and sell another 10 jets to China, what does that amount to? a couple of billion dollars it's it's nothing and also the u.s counts on this big increase in exports in lng but the u.s only has two lng export facilities that are operational and at today's prices that much gas would amount to an export capacity of about 20 billion and china only gets a fraction of that supply and what does the u.s do go to its current other suppliers. Well, actually, we're going to slash to you and, and give it all to and make China take it all. Then you create an imbalance with someone else. And this is the problem. You can't have this idea that we always have to have parity between nations. With some nations, you may have a surplus. With others, you may have a deficit. Now, US corn exports you know, is another example. You know, if it jumps from about 150 million to about 10 billion annually within a few years, if china vastly expanded its quotas and reduced its duties that are as high as 65 percent you may have a a vague possibility of that happening but there's no signs they're prepared to do that remember china already has tariffs in place and they've refused they haven't lowered anything all they've done is backed away from the trade war and it is a trade war that existed from my perspective between the two nations but they haven't backed off in any in any way shape or form and another U.S. proposal, they think they're going to increase um, services in related to U.S. cloud computing companies by about twenty-five to fifty percent. And but Chinese negotiated rejected a substantial opening in its uh, cloud computing uh, market, and they've also said they needed to control the market for national security reasons. So that's another no-goer, you know. Now obviously the cure, what's curious is the Chinese asked Washington to relax its control on technology sales which Chinese officials said could lead to you know maybe tens of billions of dollars in Chinese purchases a per year. And what do you think well okay that it's it's not massive but you know let's say it was 30 billion it reduces that 200 billion deficit by you know what brains got say 15%. So But do you know what the US did? They rejected out of hand, completely said, no, sorry, we're not allowing that. They also (laughs) pushed for a big increase in US semiconductor export, which totaled about six billion. But the but the problem is that would disrupt the global supply chains of US companies. So it's just not viable to even do that. And of course, US chips are tested and assembled into different components and frequently shipped to China for assembly into you know, other computer and communications uh, hardware. So in other words, US chips show up in China, but they're not counted in the trade statistic. So in a sense, the, the, the deficit isn't probably quite as high in that regard as is believed. You know, so the question is, and if you want to build up computer chip sales directly to China, you've got to move the intermediate testing and assembly work to China. But again what's the problem with that you disrupt existing supply chain and you build up the chinese semiconductor industry which is precisely what the us doesn't want to do so when you strip away all the 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 rhetoric and all the idea oh you know the us have won one here and china's back down well a china's not back down and i've just highlighted a few examples of why the whole process is fraught with, with danger and fraught with impossibilities to even make this happen. And that's why talking about the detail is extremely important because when people say to me, well, China's doing this, no, they're not. And the U S is not going to be able to just penetrate the Chinese market that easily because it's detrimental, could be detrimental to the Chinese, but in the process, as we said, they could disrupt existing supply chain and the U S actually, you know, they, what they t- what they give in one hand, they take in another, and it screws them over in some other capacity. So it's of no benefit for them to do that either. And the truth is the Chinese have, have not budged an inch. All they've done is said the trade war has to end. So the status quo is back to where it was before before the, um, the, the whole sort of debacle started with the U.S. trying to impose sanction, uh, tariffs sorry, on China. But in the process, China's rolled nothing back. They've agreed to nothing specifically. There's there's vague ideas as to what might be able to be implemented, but there's nothing of any substance. And and in the process, China's already rotated some of its soybean exports away from the U.S. Well, it's not going to suddenly tear up an agreement that it signed with the likes of Brazil a few weeks ago. So it's a major problem. And the point is, the U.S. has achieved nothing by doing this. In fact, in fact, they've made things worse for themselves. If they'd sat down with the Chinese and said, "Look, yeah, we have these problems. Let's see if we can find a way where you know we can benefit more from 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 our you know trade going to to China and reduce this deficit," the Chinese would have sat down and said, "Okay, you know, maybe we can do this, but maybe that involves some inward Chinese investment inside the U.S. market." Well, the Chinese have tried to do that, but they've had been a lot of resistance, saying, "We don't want you investing." you know, in the US economy because it's against national security interests, etc. Well, you know, yes, at times there may be arguments for that, but in the process it's extremely detrimental to shut the door in totality. So there's a there's a lesson being learned here. You can't go around bullying nations and expecting them to, to acquiesce to your demands. And I come back to the point, Trump treats nations like it's a business deal and it doesn't work. And particularly not the Chinese, who are the, the U.S.'s biggest creditor. And really, the U.S. needs to do everything it can to work in harmony with the Chinese and not anger them in the process. And and equally, the Chinese are annoyed about the JCPOA and the U.S. walking away from that. So it's not exclusively just to do with the, the tariffs. But, you know, we could talk. We could spend a whole hour show just talking about the issues of how the U.S. addresses its um, It's trade with China and reduces the deficit. But I think we've given enough examples of why it's a major problem. And it's not a simple question of saying to China, well, we're just going to export these goods and you're going to buy them from us. Because it's the reverse way. Imagine if the U.S. had a trade surplus with a nation and the nation starts going, well, well, actually, we've got problems and we want to renegotiate deals and we want you to take more of our imports. By the way, you're going to pay 20 percent more than you're paying with nation acts currently, no one's going to agree to that for for obvious reasons.
0: Right. Absolutely. And it's Paul, it's very interesting how it it all ties together. I mean, I'm looking at a report and it says that the belt and road initiative, uh, led to an increase of over $666 billion, which was up 20% from the previous year. And that's on their imports alone in China. And now you're witnessing what's happening, you know, with Iran that will continue uh, to isolate, you know, the United States as far as trade. There was a lot of agreements up front with several countries in Europe with these deals with Iran. Uh, You know, they're not easily going to back away. I mean, the EU is is financially struggling as well. So I I think the end result of this is you will see, uh, you know, Europe, Germany, you will see them lean and continue probably to pivot more towards China and Russia as a result of this.
1: Well, yes, and ultimately, and I, I go back, even before we, we started you know, coming on Rogue Money, I mean, I go back, there's public, where I've talked about things back in the past and written articles and made public statements that you know, at the end of the day, the whole pivot of, of the Europe East is being ongoing for a while. I mean, I, I stating it too many times, You've got Germany, Holland, Finland, and Austria who are already working in that regard. And and it, and it shows, you know, Merkel's still the chancellor, but these negotiations and discussions have been ongoing for a while. There's certainly a lot of Chinese and European interest in terms of trade that's an ongoing part of the process. You're now seeing France being you know, brought into that sphere along with the other four nations. And, and of course, but these kind of developments is only going to accelerate that process. And yeah, at the end of the day, the, be- the better situation for, for the US will be to sit down with the Iranians and start to build a relationship with them. And actually, you know, the US could use its expertise and go in, in the energy sector and work with the Iranians, get some leverage and get some trade and commerce going with the Iranians in the process. But, I mean, realistically, when the cabal blows over and the whole world changes in at some point in the future, how long is it going to be before Iran will even sit down and do any trade with the US? That, that's the question, and none of us can say with any certainty. But that lack of trust is, 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 is going to take a long time to, um, to to sort of change. And this is why this the whole US foreign policy isn't working. And when people think... Oh, well it's all part of a game and and it's all working well for the for the trump administration well i've just explained in terms of the sanctions and, and and china how it's not working and we've explained in some detail and i've gone into exhaustive detail with our podcast subscribers as to the whole ins and outs of the jcpoa and what's going on and why it's very detrimental to the us and there's a lot of side issues that are hugely relevant and important in that regard so The U.S. foreign policy is not helping the U.S. in any way, shape or form. All it's doing is isolating. Now, yes, there's an argument that isolation kills the dollar, kills the cabal. But, you know, I think in the process, the the Trump administration needs to be looking to the future and saying, well, okay, yes, we have a goal and we've got an stated goal. And that's exactly what he said when he talked about draining the swamp. That's precisely what he means. But in the process, don't get tangled up in in disagreements with the likes of China and Russia's a problematic situation because the whole Russia Gate thing and as big a nonsense as it is and there's a whole bunch more developments which makes that lack any credibility, even more if that was even possible. But, you know, they need to be having alliances and, and, you know, with nations in the process of doing what they're doing because, I mean, intelligently, that's exactly what China and Russia have done. They've worked with with nations that have had cabal influence in them. Like Japan's a classic example of that. Turkey was another example. You can work with your supposed enemies, in inverted commas, or your adversaries whilst this transition's going on, but the U.S. doesn't seem at this point to be doing that, and that ultimately is, is detrimental to them.
0: Right, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Paul, uh, what would you like uh, to discuss next? What else is uh, there Good I know. I, <laughs> well, I saw an interesting report and it stated that basically, again, just and it's it's probably for another show other conversation. That's just the fact that uh, the U.S. debt and any type of rising in interest rate and with the revised you know, budget uh, that quickly that I think that they said within the next five to 10 years that our debt will surpass 85 percent of GDP, which is just, just completely unsustainable
1: well yeah we've taught i mean yes the problem the problem with the us is it's the age-old thing when you have a qe and zero interest rate policy for any length of time it kills your economy and the us quite rightly because it's built on debt it is incapable of truly raising interest rates in in any meaningful way before killing everything because having this debt based you imagine someone's mortgage increases their credit card debt increases. You know, maybe, maybe they've got some other loan this time. You know, or maybe, you know, maybe I mean, often some of you have fixed loans at fixed interest rates. So okay, you're not going to be affected. But by and large, the U.S. economy is not geared towards interest rates going up to three, four percent, or whatever it might do in the future. So, and and everything you know, economically, is is proving the point that despite all the economic stats and this is you know without laboring the point but i think it's hugely important is that the us continues to uh, to fuel this idea that oh we've got a really strong economy and you know that and you know everything's perfectly fine uh, the stock markets you know g- going through the roof everything's fine there's no problems when economic reality proves anything but that and you know, and, we, and if we look at it, the, you know, you know, the, U, the reality is, as whether people like it or not, is the U.S. has been declining for about 20 years in, it, in it, what you might call its superpower status, its economic status, its military status, and its manufacturing status. You know, of, that, of that, there is no doubt. And if we talk about the Chinese retaliatory tariffs. They, they had an instant effect on the agricultural industry and other sectors who are dependent on parts from China and Taiwan or who sell to China. And they suddenly had this massive decline of 70 to 90 percent in just in just almost instantly. What do we know? Job creation is is at the low end of the employment spectrum, uh, which we know and that is factually true. It's certainly the case across all of Western Europe in the process. They're not. They're not, you know, solid, dependable jobs that give people an opportunity to earn a decent living. There's people working two and three jobs in the process. Thousands have been and tens of thousands have been made redundant across the U.S. In, on a weekly basis. Uh, ask the average American rent, transportation, the cost of food is the highest levels over the last decade. And yet we know incomes of the majority of the U.S. has declined in, re- in real terms aggressively. You've got credit card debt, mortgage, and student debt. You've got U.S. municipal and federal debt. That's its highest levels ever in history. Bankruptcies and foreclosures are at, at, at ridiculous highs, and the total of all this debt, I think, is is just well, it's obscene. Who knows? I mean, there's the whole idea of the U.S. debt being twenty-one trillion. There's unfunded liabilities, at least two hundred and fifty trillion, maybe three hundred trillion. Trillions of credit card debt, mortgage debt, student debt, and and you know the problem is that that's only going to increase when you increase um, interest rates. And it goes back to when in two thousand eight with the bailout of banks and corporations, it it was sold to the people like it saved the U.S., but it was never going to resolve anything. And there'll be never will be ever a recovery from the consequences of. QE and zero interest rate policy, and the problem is that the economic collapse is also now that affecting major hedge funds in the U.S. They're losing billions of dollars. Now you can't find a buyer at consumer levels, or or you know IPOs at corporate levels, and the media, of course, and even some research policy institutions are hiding everything under the carpet, as if nothing's wrong, because you know they're paid well enough. And they don't care if it's to the detriment of middle and, and lower classes. Um, or, you know, the fact that corporations are selling more overseas than, than in, in the U.S. internal market. And here's the other thing that's quite frightening, is many Americans now are struggling to afford even a basic lifestyle. There was a, there was a, um, a report that came out recently saying that around 51 million households in America don't earn enough money to afford a monthly budget to include housing food childcare health care even owning a, a mobile phone and transportation that's apparently 43 percent of households in the US and that includes around 60 million households living in poverty as well as about 35 million households that That have been dubbed ALICE, which is asset limited, income constrained, and employed. And this group makes less than what's needed to survive in what we might term uh, a modern economy. By all accounts, um, California is one of the largest share of struggling uh, families in New Mexico, another example. Apparently, North Dakota is the lowest, but they're still at 32%. But of course, North Dakota has a lot of. um, of, uh, sort of energy re- which reserves an employment in that regard. But you know, the problem is most many of these people are, are like childcare workers, people who do you know, office assistants, what you term storm clerk. They've got low-paid jobs, they've got little savings. And it's around two-thirds of jobs in the US now pay less than $20 an hour. I mean <laughs> and i think there was an example in seattle they they took an example in seattle somewhere and okay maybe not representative there might be there's plenty of people out there who might be able to tell us to the contrary but they were saying that the annual household survival budget for a family of four was around eighty thousand dollars that might seem a little bit high but i can't tell i don't live in the us but what they're saying is that requires an hourly wage of about forty dollars an hour um, and yet, if you take Washington State, only 14% of jobs pay more than $40 an hour. And, and in the process, what's the, Seattle doing? They've passed this tax on big businesses, they say, to help alleviate the city's growing homelessness and affordable housing problems. I'm sure, you know, what we've just discussed now is, is endemic across a large part of the U.S. It's certainly the case, I know, in the U.K. increasing is more and more very low paid jobs people are struggling to to afford to to pay for basics and this is not a strong economy and if you look at all these examples of how is in raising interest rates going to to benefit the U.S. economy it's going to kill the U.S. economy more than it's already killed in the process of having QEO and zero interest rate policy and yet we're told U.S. unemployment's less than four percent and the U.S. economy (laughs) is riding away. well And yet we know from U6 statistics, as we said before, it's about 22, 23 percent. And it has been more or less that figure since 2008. You know, it it fluctuates slightly, maybe a bit higher. And of course, it could be even higher than 20 percent. And Trump said as much that, you know, in fact, he even said at one time it could be as high as 40 percent. I think that's probably a little bit over the top. This was before um, before he was elected during his presidential campaign but this is all economic reality that's playing out and at some point the whole thing the whole house of cards comes down what's trump going to say then i mean we you know we talk about credibility on a world stage with with nations but if the us economy crumbles who everyone's going to blame the trump administration precisely because he keeps saying how great the economy is so they'll say well you spent long enough telling us how great it was and claiming credit for it. Well, when it collapses, you're going to have to take the, you know, the heat and 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 admit responsibility. You can't then say, well, actually, it was nothing to do with us. So, once again, he's digging a bit of a hole for himself, and I think that's that's detrimental to the Trump administration in the process because at some point, the the U.S. people are going to turn around and go, well, what the hell happened? Mm -hmm. you told us all these things it's not reality i mean i mean yes all nations to an extent do that i mean the uk tries to talks about low unemployment and but it doesn't over egg things too much in that regard because you know the reality is it must know and this is the thing trump must know the reality because he talked about the reality so eloquently during his uh, presidential campaign so he can't suddenly not be aware of the fact but, you know, there's managing expectation and not frightening. The US economy in, in a worse situation. And yeah, there's all the argument, you know, if he if came out with the truth, the US stock market collapse overnight. And some people say, well, OK, that should happen. But that's not the point. The point is that you have to get the balance right. But don't over egg the, uh, the stability and strength of an economy, which which is which is simply not the case. Say very little and manage your words carefully so then you do have some sort of wriggle room in the future to be able to get around the problem of of the the inevitable collapse of of economies that are going to happen when we go through the reset the u.s dollar eviscerates etc etc and and that nothing's improved since 2008 and all the things we've we've talked about exhaustively for a very very long time
0: paul very well said very well said, Paul. Please uh, share your website and uh, your subscription system, system based as well access, uh, so that our listeners can learn more about your work, please.
1: Well, thanks. Well, yeah, obviously the website's the dot com s i r i u uh, s. There's a lot of free material on there, and um, you know it goes back quite a few years. But if you look at what we've written, it's pretty much m- most, if not all, is coming to pass, and and we wrote a lot of the things. With a vision to the future of where we where we saw the things kind of, you know eventually heading. Yeah, in terms of the podcast, it's it's four dollars seventy-five a month. We've not put the price up at all in over 18 months. And what we've talked today is is a small fraction of of the detail that we provide in areas. We never discuss what we discuss on here, we don't discuss in podcasts, and, and vice versa, because people pay for that material. And you get that that detail and level of understanding so it's not just a question of saying well this is how it is we we back it up with facts and analysis that that is supported and 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 it gives gravity to what we say and why we we more often than not all the things we've said in the past have come to fruition and and we'll do so in the future because we spend the time and effort to make that understanding and we think now compared to a lot of people out there, they charge infinitely more on a monthly basis than we do. And and in fact, the podcast now, we used to do about 10 to 15 minutes. Each one's now getting towards 20 minutes each one because there is that much to discuss. And, and we're now getting to the point it's very difficult to know what not to discuss. And we're missing things out on a daily basis simply. Otherwise, we talk for hours and, and nobody wants to listen to me talking for hours on end, <laughs> day in, day out. <laughs> But no, we appreciate everyone who has subscribed, and we'd like, you know, encourage people to to subscribe. I don't, I don't think it's expensive by any stretch of the imagination, and you know, we're going to we'll still be around making, you know, predictions and doing the shows and, and making that analysis long after you know people who who come and go with with making statements that don't have any substance. You know, if you don't agree with me, fine, but at least you have to acknowledge the fact that we back things up with substance and with facts. And what I've just said about the US economy and it um, is factually true, and what we said about China and the tariffs is factually true. And and that is gives far more credence to than just having a belief that there's some there's some great idea that you know China and Russia and the US are playing some game. Well, OK, if they're playing the game, show me the evidence. Where's the detail? Where's the information that substanti- substantiates those comments? there's no good saying it because we can come on and make all grandiose comments about what's going on but we always get the detail and that's hugely important in terms of the analysis and that's what rogue money does as well and not not exclusively us there are other great people out there who who do the same thing so but it's important that people have that level of of solid information and analysis and facts because in this ever changing world on a weekly monthly basis there is going to be lots of twists and turns, and it's not this linear progression, and that's why it's important that we do assess things on a weekly basis, and why everything we do in the podcast is is reactive and proactive. We're not talking about things that happen weeks and months ago. Often we'll talk about things that happen on the day they happen, or certainly within a matter of a couple of days happening, and focus on those because they're all important uh, pieces of the puzzle, which. Unless you put all the pieces together, it's very difficult to understand what's going on.
0: Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for being on today and uh, delivering a great show. We sincerely appreciate your insights. Uh, So thank you so much for our fans as well for listening in. Uh, This is uh, CJ and London Paul, and we're over and out. Take care, everyone.